Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. What I need is a small team of focused people who are on board, who can be focused on getting this done and will prove it out as we go. And I think the mistake I made with the 2.0 cloud product was we got way too many people involved way too quickly, right? I think for the initial phases of project, it's actually advantageous to have a smaller team. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we have a conversation with Paul Dix, co-founder and CTO at InfluxDB, about how to sustain long-term tech transformation. We cover the history behind InfluxDB and its three main transformational phases the past 10 years, how to know when it's time to take your company to the next level, strategies to identify the right people to lead your transformation, integrating multiple teams into your re-architecture, and Paul's thoughts on building open source companies and communities. Let me introduce you to Paul. Paul's the creator of InfluxDB. He's helped build software for startups, large companies, and organizations like Microsoft, Google, McAfee, Thomas Reuters, and Air Force Space Command. He's the series editor for Addison Wellesley's Data and Analytics book and video series. In 2010, Paul wrote the book Service-Oriented Design with Ruby and Rails. Paul's also a fellow community builder. In 2009, he started the New York City Machine Learning Meetup. Enjoy our conversation with Paul Dix. Well, to begin, I just want to say welcome, Paul. It's great to have you on the show. Some of the themes that I know we want to cover in this conversation focus and center on how to sustain a long-term transformation project. And InfluxDB has gone through multiple evolutions since you started this uh, almost 11 years ago. And I know you'd mentioned to me that there have been maybe three different major phases and evolutions for the company. I was wondering if you could just introduce us to the InfluxDB story and maybe from your perspective, some of those three major phases, and then I think we'll be able to start to deconstruct and extract some of the challenges that you faced along the way. Yeah, so I'll try to be quick with the backstory. So my co-founder and I started the company as a company called Airplane, uh, and our goal was to build a real a SaaS product for doing real-time metrics and application exception tracking and stuff like that. And my thesis at the time was I, I had a background in machine learning and essentially I would use, I would gather all this, you know, infrastructure monitoring data and all this stuff and use machine learning techniques to do like correlation and, you know, anomaly detection and all sorts of crazy stuff. And uh, we went into Y Combinator with that idea. I raised a seed round of funding in the spring of 2013 based on that. Over the course of 2013, what we realized, was, one, I didn't get to do any machine learning stuff. We ended up having to build just like a bunch of infrastructure and application code and stuff like that to even get to the point where we could like sign customers on and get at some of this data. It became obvious pretty quickly that that product wasn't going to take off and we weren't going to have the resources necessary to 
make it happen. Like we, we raised like 750K in the seed round, which even by 2013 standards was fairly modest. So I thought the infrastructure that we had built was pretty interesting. You know, so it was basically a, a time series API, time series database written in Go using LevelDB. So in the fall of 2013, we decided, well, maybe we should try like focusing on this infrastructure piece, but if we want people to use it as a tool to build their own applications, it's got to be open source. So we'll start it as a new thing. We'll call it InfluxDB. Basically, we'll use the exact same technologies that we used before, even pull over some of the code, but create it as a new project that was meant to be open sourced. Uh, so we'll spike on that for like five or six weeks. I'll give some talks. Uh, we had moved back to New York at this point. So I'll give some talks at some meetups here in New York City, and we'll see how it goes. I gave those talks you know, in early November of 2013. We had like a really, really basic documentation website that we put up. Somebody put that on Hacker News, and it got to the front page, and it was there like all day, and a bunch of people were making comments about how interesting it was, right? Like now you hear about time series databases, and it's totally obvious. Everybody, like there's a new time series database all the time, but in 2013, nobody was focused on this space. It, within like a couple of months, it was obvious that InfluxDB should be the thing we should focus on. We should just jettison the old SaaS product and turn everything over to InfluxDB. And from that point in 2014, basically we're you know, working on this early version of InfluxDB. I call it like a prototype of a database, right? We're telling people like it's not production ready. We're experimenting and doing all these things. So I spent my time either, you know, speaking at conferences or meetups to spread the word or later in the year fundraising for the Series A. Initially, I just wanted to raise like more seed capital because it was me, my co-founder and one other guy. I was just like, we just need more time. And I knew we were going to run out of money by like September or October of, of 2014. I couldn't find, I mean, we didn't have like any sort of network. Nobody knew who we were. So, you know, I couldn't find people who wanted to like give us more seed money, but some people in the Bay area were actually interested in, you know, potentially doing a series A. So I was like, okay, great. Uh, and 2013 was like earlier that year was the year that Docker got released. You know, MongoDB raised a huge round of funding in summer of 2013. Uh, and RethinkDB raised a, like a big round, a series A round in early 2014. So that was kind of like in the air. As I pursued that, I was like, okay, I, like we have this vision to not just do the database, but to do this whole platform, right? And even then in 2014, when I was doing the Series A pitch, it was like, there could be four components in the platform. There's going to be a collector, which is telegraphed today. It's going to be the database. There's going to be a processing agent, which became Capacitor, uh, which is in the 1.x stack. And there's going to be uh, a user interface for doing visualization, which is Chronograph. And I raised money based on that. Essentially, this is basically the first phase, right? Getting InfluxDB up to 1.0. Uh, so we released 1.0 in September of 2016. And the system that we had built at that point was really optimized for, I'd say, metrics-style time series data. Time series data can be either metrics, like samples collected at fixed intervals of time, or you can basically just create time series on the fly from any underlying data stream that you choose, right? Event data is really useful. So events could be individual trades in the stock market, request to an API, a machine turning on or off. You can create time series from that raw data. And ultimately, that was the vision we had for InfluxDB, is it would be useful for both types of data. But from a technology perspective, it was easier for us to optimize for that metrics use case. So the underlying architecture of the database all was built around that. 
when we released 1.0, we had an, you know, the open source, we had an enterprise product, which is basically a software subscription. And then we had a hosted product on AWS where a customer could say, you know, I want these many VMs with this much CPU and this much RAM and this much disk space. And we'd automatically provision it and install the enterprise product and add some backups and monitoring. But the business as a whole that we built from, I'd say, 2016 to like 2019, 2020 was kind of like an enterprise software business in terms of what the sales looked like and also how the development cycle worked, right? We'd ship two to three feature bearing releases a year, different like patch fixes and stuff like that. So that was phase one. Phase two was we decided we wanted to do a few things at the same time. So one, we wanted to shift to a uh, cloud first delivery model, right? We felt that only being able to ship major feature releases twice a year was like killing our velocity and killing our ability to get feedback from our customers. So we wanted a cloud delivery model where any individual development team could ship code to production every business day or any business day they choose, right? So to do that, we had to basically break apart this monolith of the database. The, the database was a monolithic system, right? It's like one binary and you ship the whole thing. We had to say, okay, let's decompose this into a set of services that can be run as a SaaS product and multi-tenant. And the other piece what we wanted was basically to have usage-based pricing, right? You pay for data in, you pay for data at rest, and you pay for queries that you execute right, and data egress, rather than a pricing model that's based on how many cores you're running for the database or whatever. So we spent, you know, a good two, three years building that and improving that. Uh, so with that also came InfluxDB 2.0. Uh, and the focus of 2.0 from the open source angle was we had a new language that we built called Flux, uh, which was a combination of scripting and a query language. So you could do more than just query data. You could connect to third-party systems and pull data in at query time or send data out. And you could express more complex logic within the actual database itself. Uh, and then the other piece was those four different components of the stack. Uh, with 2.0, we actually brought them all into one thing. So you could get the entire stack in a single binary that you just install. So that was phase two. Phase three, which you know we've been working on for probably about two and a half years now, and that we just announced the release of last week, is this InfluxDB IOX phase. For that, what we wanted to do was we wanted to revisit the core architecture of the database. And we wanted to optimize the database so that it could be useful for those event-driven use cases, those use cases where you have infinite cardinality data, you have tons of data streaming in, and you're not necessarily storing already computed time series. You're storing raw data, and you want to compute time series on the fly from that raw data. But we still needed to be useful for all of those you know, metrics, raw, you know, regular time series use cases. Because of how the architecture of the old database looked, we knew it would require like a complete re-architecture of the database. So as I mentioned before, InfluxDB is written in Go. Well, this new database is a ground-up rewrite, and it's written in Rust, which was a big bet that we made, you know, two and a half years ago. And now it's it's looking like it's you know paying off. We've seen a lot of developments in the Rust ecosystem and the Apache Arrow ecosystem, which we also use and contribute to heavily uh, within the last two years. And all of these little things along the way have kind of validated the choice to use. Rust as the technology and build it around Arrow and to be active contributors, you know, in these projects. But you know, you're talking about 
a two and a half year development cycle where, you know, we, we announced the release last week, but that's basically private beta that we're running a more public GA release is coming early next year. That's a difficult development cycle, particularly when I mentioned like the point of our 2.0 release and product was cloud first delivery, shipping code to production, literally every business day. That was actually still going on for the entire, you know, last two and a half years. So while that was still going, we still had to have over on this other side, this like long-term bet that was just literally going to take years of investment uh, and effort before it would pay off, right? <laughs> and which is a difficult thing to do. <laughs> Oh my gosh, like just thinking about the timescales for all of those projects, I, I mean, they, probably the emotional roller coaster at different points of feedback as the project's going on. There, there's so many follow-up questions I have, Paul, about the early days of the speaking to the ML meetup communities as a way to sort of validate the idea, to then also talking about open source and the way that open source has been leveraged strategically. But I think like, like I'd love to zoom in most recently, I think, to, to the latest release of Influx DB IOX. Can you bring us to like the beginning moment where you all made the decision that this was the, the big bet and investment we needed to make? And then what did it look like to spin up that project with the teams that were going to be building that over the next two to three years? At first, it was kind of gradual. I mean, I already, already wanted to do a re-architecture of the database, probably in like 2017 or 2018, but we were so focused on 2.0 that that wasn't feasible, mm -hmm. right? So we basically like, we did, we de developed cloud two, or basically what is our cloud product now, but the underlying database technology is the same technology that we used in enterprise and in flexdb 1.x and 2.x. Finally, in the fall of 2019, you know, I was thinking, okay, I, I think it's actually really time to like start looking at this. The fall of 2019, incidentally, is also when we released the early like beta of our new cloud offering. And it wasn't really until the fall of 2020 that became like ready in market. But I was already like at that point seriously focused on on IOX. So initially it was me as, as CTO just doing some research and looking into things I thought were interesting and then deciding that, okay, I want to do this. So literally I, I just grabbed one of our one of our database engineers who I really respected. I said, all right, let's work on this together. We started in early 2020. I basically had a, a separate thing that pulled me away basically for February and early March. So basically by mid-March of 2020, it was the two of us working on this. But it was basically, at that point, I still wasn't sure exactly how the whole thing would be structured. So it was kind of a research project. It was like, I knew we had to redo the architecture of the database. I, and I knew like the problems we needed to solve. We needed infinite cardinality, we need tiered data storage so that we could have some data in memory that's super, super fast for query, but then this massive volume of data that's stored in object storage that's still accessible for query, but not necessarily as fast. For our use case, that's important. Uh, and the cardinality problem is important. And then we really wanted to support SQL as a query language uh, and being able to do larger scale analytical queries. So those were like the key things. And then in May of 2020, one other person joined us. And then basically the three of us through the summer of 2020. And at that point, like we were researching things, we were looking at other databases, right? We like nothing was off the table in terms of what we were considering because we were really just thinking about the core engine for our cloud product at that time. And ultimately, like we just I, I knew at that point that it was going to be written in Rust because of the advantages that I see Rust has for this kind of software. Also, one of the things I thought then, which turned out to not be a requirement or a need was I was half expecting to have to bring in a bunch of C++ code from 
other open source projects to give us a, a head start. We ended up not having to do that. So by the summer of 2020, it was like, okay, it's going to be written in Rust. I know we're building it around Apache Arrow, which means Parquet is the file format. Uh, we want to support Apache Arrow Flight, and Arrow is going to be the in-memory like representation of the data to like move it around from piece to piece. And we're going to use a project called Data Fusion, which is a sub-project in the Rust part of Apache Arrow. And Data Fusion is essentially there's a SQL parser, a planner, an optimizer, and an execution engine. Right, so it's a whole like SQL query engine all in one library. Summer 2020, that project was still fairly early, but the evaluation we did versus other options, like, okay, no matter what we pick, we're gonna have to have pretty strong, like we're gonna have to contribute to this, whatever it is pretty heavily and basically take personal ownership of it, not necessarily community stewardship of it, but it's gonna be important enough to us that we're gonna own this code. So we made the bet that Data Fusion as a project was interesting because it was written in Rust. It seemed to be the thing that had that was farthest along at that point and we could help you know drive it faster and farther. So fast forward to November of 2020, we had hired one extra person for the team who had just started. And then we had our annual conference, Influx Days. And I decided that I wanted to announce this new core of the database that we're working on in November of 2020, which at this point is like, we just finished the research phase and we just started writing some actual real code. So we're like so far away from having anything useful. It's just <laughs> absurd, right? But I was super excited about it. And the thing that you know, we had done early on in Influx's history was, you know, gotten up in front of people and talked about what we were doing well in advance of it actually being ready for any real use, mainly because it's just like a great way to get feedback, right? So I gave a talk about this new core of the database. And I said, like, here are things we're trying to accomplish. This is why we're doing it, right? And of course, like doing a ground up rewrite of your database is a risky proposition, particularly in a completely new language. But I thought, I thought the reasoning was sound. Uh, so I gave... A talk then and I announced, okay, we're expanding this team, we're hiring. And the great thing is like, as a result of that blog post and that talk, we had, you know, a bunch of people apply to Influx uh, to work with us on, on the project. So, you know, we did a bunch of interviews and basically from mid-January of 2021 to uh, the 1st of March in 2021, I think we added like five new hires to the team and we brought two other people from within the organization or the team. So by March, like March 1st of 2021, we had a team of 10 people, including me, which is actually more than I would choose to have for this early of a phase of a project. But the, we just like had access to such great people. They were like, okay, well, we should bring them in because they can be useful anyway. Uh, so yeah, making the announcement then I thought was actually, you know, even though it wasn't ready, I think it was a huge advantage in terms of getting people, people interested in the project so that we could actually build out a team to work on it. And at that stage, it was validating for everybody else in the company who said like, why is Paul working on this weird like skunkworks side project? <laughs> but again, like that was November of 2020. Now we're two, literally two years later. So that two year stretch and, and basically like it's been that team for the entire time. We haven't added more people mm -hmm. to the team uh, over the last you know few months. We've had other teams within the company, like within the cloud product, put their effort towards using what we've built. But this core database team has been the same team from that entire time. 
uh, which has been useful, right? The first like three months of having all those people come on, it was very difficult and rocky to try and get everything going and everything moving like in one direction. I think that the thing that stands out to me is starting with people is like, here's the big initiative that we want to do. Like, who are the right people that I, I need to bring into this to help make this happen? So that stands out to me. The other is it's wild to me to consider or to think about how you were able to generate that much progress with a, a small group of 10 people or so. And then only up until the last few months involved the, the folks focusing on a lot of other big, big initiatives and priorities. I have a couple quick follow up questions. One. Like, what were the questions you asked to build or identify the right people for the team right away? And then what was like the time percentage that you were spending on this? Like, was this like an 80% like your, your number one priority or were you balancing other things at the same time? So in 2020, in, in the summer of 2020 and probably up until into 2021, I was spending majority of my time on it. It's only been actually for the last like maybe six months or so, eight months that I've been spread to a bunch of different areas. Actually, basically since the beginning of this year. But at that point, a lot more of the core decisions around how it would be built and stuff were kind of made and it was just moving forward. So I spent a considerable amount of time, at least for the first year and a half of it, uh, focused on it. And I was actually writing code in the early days, which was great. I got into the software business because I love to write code. And unfortunately, I don't get to do that very much anymore. But <laughs> there was a period of time on this where I was. So yeah, and in terms of like people, I mean, we were looking for a very specific skill set, right? We were looking for people who knew Rust, uh, which is very, very small audience in, you know, the fall of 2020. It's getting bigger every day, but it's still not that big compared to, you know, the major languages. I just saw a, a, a tweet yesterday talking about the Rust movement. So it's getting bigger, but 2020, definitely not, no. Yeah. Uh, so we, either people who knew Rust or people who knew databases, which again is not a very large group of people. And for the database people, you're really looking mostly at C++ programmers uh, who can pick up Rust pretty easily. And then the, the last category was essentially just people who had built distributed systems or complex like data infrastructure applications that require multiple services to run. You know, of those 10 people, it's more senior people than junior or mid-level people. And at this point, like everybody on that team is fairly senior because they've been working on it for, for a while. So they know this problem space better than many people would. So yeah, it was basically specific skill sets. And the thing is we're, even before the pandemic, we were, we were a very distributed company. We were very remote friendly. 60 plus percent of our people were distributed and remote pre-pandemic. So when the pandemic hit, we were just like, okay, no more offices, we're done, that's over. So we could hire people from anywhere. So our team is spread out uh, in Europe and mostly East Coast. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. The other element that really stood out to me was like consistently through InfluxDB's history as a company is it seems like you've continually gone to the community for feedback or have leveraged like opportunities to to share with other people what's going on in really big public forums or that speaking or meetup groups. Were there any key insights from some of those talks that you were giving to, to sort of 
open up what's going on or your hypothesis around how you wanted to approach it? Like, were there any key insights that you got from the community from doing those types of things? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's one of the benefits of doing open source is that you mm -hmm. can get a community around it and you can actually get a ton of feedback, right? You get a ton of feedback in GitHub issues or on the mailing lists or just, you know, speaking at meetups and conferences. Like, to me, it's, it's a lot of fun to go speak to, like, a meetup of people where it's maybe just like 50 people. I mean, it's really high bandwidth to get to talk to people after you give a talk to find out what they thought was interesting. But for instance, the data model in InfluxDB changed once over its lifetime. So when we first shipped, it had one data model. And then in the fall of 2014, I was giving talks about InfluxDB and I was debating two big ideas. One was should we change the data model? And the data model is considering was the one that it currently has today, right? This idea of measurements and tags and fields. And then the other question I had was, uh, should we change the query language from InfluxQL, which looked kind of like SQL, to something that was more just like a purely functional query language? Now, at that time, with the next release of InfluxDB, we decided we'd change the data model because it would help our users use the system. It would make it easier to optimize certain query types, but we would keep the query language, right? So that's what we developed. With IOX, with this new version of the database, I gave the talk and it definitely, I didn't get, like, I got feedback. I saw feedback from it and I got, you know, I talked to some people about it, but I would say there was less insight on that one, then there was just validation of my thinking. Mm -hmm. And I guess like, I, I definitely, the architecture of, of IOX has definitely evolved over that time, over the two years since I gave that talk. But that's also kind of been based on our learning as a development team as we've deployed it into our infrastructure and mirrored workloads onto it and saw like what the operational properties were and all this other stuff. So I, I think the the difference from 2014 to, you know, the 2020 timeframe is basically just like the length of time I've been in this space, right? My awareness of the different projects that exist and the strengths and weaknesses of them. And also like a lot of these things come down to opinion and reasonable, smart engineers can actually disagree about the best way to do things. And sometimes you kind of just have to say, okay, well, I'm going to do it my way or I'm going to accept this other way or whatever. How did you, I guess, were there disagreements and how did you resolve them? You can't get a room of 10 engineers together and not have there not be disagreements about how to do something. Generally, if there's somebody who feels really, really strongly about it, the onus is on them to like create a document, a design document or something like that. And, you know, preferably some code that exhibits the behavior that they're looking for. One time uh, and now another time where I kind of exerted founder privilege and said, well, I don't think what we're doing is working. And I basically tried to argue the best I could about why. And of course, like I couldn't win total uh, unanimous consensus. And at some point I just had to say, well, this is the way we're going to do it. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I hope I'm not. <laughs> and let's move forward, basically. The, yeah, one of those was basically at the beginning of this year, we kind of had to change up the architecture a little bit to make it easier to operate, easier to scale. And then another one is like an architecture change we're currently making. Usually it's those kinds of architecture decisions that are the trickiest bits, like design decisions. Because there's a little bit more artistry behind that than, than yeah. more of like an objective right or wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 the problem is to really prove those things out. Like you'd have to actually like write the code, deploy it, operate it at scale alongside the other thing and do it for a length of time where you've proven it. 
right? And by that point, you've actually created the system. So at some point, you basically just have to kind of make an argument and somebody has to be able to, to move forward or you don't do it. I appreciate the the few and far between moments of like conscious like introduction of like the founder perspective and and also the level of ownership that like I hope it works out but if it doesn't like it's on me so I think there's kind of two things if you're on that position the ownership of that is good I want to zoom out a little bit going more to the vision and strategy and guiding the team through this like long time frame and so I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your approach for two three years how you help consistently drive people towards that long term vision and create alignment around the the strategy that you all are pursuing? I mean, the very first thing I did was I wrote some blog posts about it, right? So I wrote a blog post about Rust in 2018. And I wrote a blog post later about Apache Arrow and, and that whole ecosystem, right? And those were basically the, the points at which I was like proving out like these are the technologies we should use. And part of the vision for IOX was that we currently have a pure metrics database that works really well, but we need to have something that works for metrics and something that works for raw events and can do like all these analytical things. That was basically like, like the, the other part of that is like this thesis that columnar databases or columnar design optimized for real time and time series and optimized for a cloud environment where you can decouple compute from storage is part of that, right? So I, I've done some writing about that and I share that with the team, but Honestly, the easiest thing has been, you know, over the course of the last two years, we've been working on IX to solve some specific problems, right? Like I said, the high cardinality, the query execution on, on that higher cardinality data, the need for SQL as a query language, and then the tiered data storage, which is effectively a cost saving mechanism because it's 10x cheaper to keep stuff on object storage than it is on an SSD on EBS, right? The thing is like, just focused on those four things. And over the last two years, our you know, sales team and our engineering teams that have to operate the existing system see these problems surface again and again and again. The, the thing is, like in fall of 2020, I had absolute confidence in this idea, but I was one of very few. And of course, Evan was on board uh, because Evan and I have to be on board for these kinds of things to move forward. But not everybody in the company necessarily was. But I was like, I don't care. I don't need everybody right now. What I need is a small team of focused people who are on board, who can be focused on getting this done, and we'll prove it out as we go. As the last two years have progressed, like I said, we it's a hard development project. So we haven't had incremental releases, but everybody else in the company has continued to see these problems surface again and again. And they're saying like, okay, when are we going to have a solution for this problem? I'm like, well, we're working on it. <laughs> if the problem were easy to solve, it already would have been done. Uh, so we're working on it. it. That's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because like on some level, it people build confidence that, oh, this is a thing we need. So it's something we should be doing. But then it builds expectation and pressure around, okay, when's it going to ship? And I, I get that question all the time. And of course, for anybody who is not an engineer, and even for some people who are engineers, but they've never worked on a project that has a longer time frame to get done, they always ask when it's going to ship. And I'm like, look, you know, we're not baking a quiche here. Like this is a complex software project that's going to take some time. So, which is a difficult conversation to have for sure. But I think finding those points along the points of validation along the way are basically what helped the most. And definitely, I was like the the clear the four clear problems that you're solving for paired with pointing to all of the different ways that those continue to come up as you're working on the solution, an incredible source of validation along the way. Yeah. Another process and integration question 
at what point and how did you integrate the other parts of the team in helping finalize this this re-architecture? So like the the team that were primarily working on like the the cloud services element. When did you integrate everybody there? And then how how did what did that look like? So I tried different approaches if we've, as we've done these different phases. And I think the mistake I made with the 2.0 cloud product was we got way too many people involved way too quickly, right? I think for the initial phases of project, it's actually advantageous to have a smaller team. Even 10, I think, was too big for the beginning of IOX. I think you know we would have been better served by having five. It means you actually might end up moving faster with a smaller team, mainly because of that problem where smart people will disagree about the best way to design a system. And if you you get too many people involved in the design, you're never going to build consensus, right? Mm-hmm. So once we had built the core of IOX and it's you know functional software and we have to bring other people in, then it's easier. But even then, because of the experience I had with 2.0, I really I wanted to limit the exposure to the rest of the engineering team. Right, so essentially, it's a storage system. So we started involving the new, the the previous storage team, right, the team that has to operate the currently in production storage tier. So we involved them and said, okay, we have to start thinking about how are we going to migrate people over. And then we brought in, uh, you know, the query execution team, which has the the Flux engine and the Influx QL engine. And started saying, like, okay, how do we bring you in to design stuff? And then finally, we have the other stuff on the edges, like the user interface, Telegraph, which actually we don't have to do anything for Telegraph because the data model going in and the right endpoint is all the same. So it's basically just like peeling layers of an onion or basically adding things on. But I think doing it gradually is kind of the best process as opposed to trying to do everything all at once because then it's just like utter chaos. I definitely, I definitely appreciate the, the avoidance of utter chaos. I think that's great. One of the things I wanted to talk about was your perspective on Conway's Law and how some of the, the ways that you've decided to structure either the IOX team or other teams and how that impacted sort of the end form factor. What's your perspective on Conway's Law? And can you share a little bit more about the, the impact that that's had on what you're doing at InfluxDB? Yeah, so for those that don't know, Conway's Law basically says that any software system that you design will end up, it's kind of architectural will mirror the structure of your teams or said in another way, you ship your org chart, right? So I think in the Conway's Law example, they said, you know, if you get two teams together to design a compiler, they're going to design a two-phase compiler. (laughs) If you get three teams together, you get three separate software components that work together, right? And when we initially created the 1.x stack, like we specific, like I specifically built this vision that there would be four components of the stack for each of the different things. And that was really modeled after what Elastic had done with the Elk stack, right? But the Elk stack wasn't something that they had planned for ahead of time. That was kind of emergent behavior from the community, right? Like Logstash was built separately, then Elastic acquired the developer for Logstash. Same thing with Kibana. So what, the thing is like with, with Influx, like when I went to raise the Series A, we had a prototype of a database and the A was like, let's get money so we can hire engineers to build these other three components. So we built a team for each of those components, Telegraph, InfluxDB, Chronograph, and Capacitor. And what we got were four different systems that each kind of had a slightly different API, slightly different way of setting them up, like configuration kind of logic or whatever. It wasn't as seamless as I wanted the experience to be. 
So that's why with 2.0, I said, okay, we're going to have a UI for the entire thing. We're going to have a single API that's going to be defined in one place, regardless of whether you're like defining, you know, rules for how to collect data or rules for how to process data, or if you're writing data in or executing queries. Because I didn't want those like siloed teams. What I didn't appreciate at the time was having teams where siloed teams is actually a good thing in many cases because they can execute quickly and without having to like, you know, have all these touch points. So that was something where with the 2.0 effort, we said we want one unified thing, but that ended up becoming actually a pain point because we couldn't execute individually. Now with IOX, we're just building like a database, right? We're just building the core piece. Like the for Influx data, the broader vision is this whole like time series platform, but we're just focused on this core piece. But even within that, you know, we landed on a specific architecture. And for the 10 people, or actually it's like eight people, I think now they're contributing code within it. They focus on specific components within that architecture. And it's actually, it's much easier to get people to, to iterate and move quickly when they're focused on those individual components and developers like having ownership of the code they're writing, right? That's one piece. Now, the other piece about Conway's law with regards to like open source and stuff like that, that I think is interesting just from like a business perspective is, uh, you know, if you're going to create a business around open source software, I think it's useful to think about your open source team as one separate team and your commercial team that's building the commercial product as an actually separate team. You can have them focused on their specific users and who they're trying to please, what they're trying to do. But in order to do that effectively, you kind of have to kind of set the mandate for what each individual project is supposed to do, right? And for the open source thing, you kind of have to be pretty strict and clear about what it is supposed to do because you will get users requesting all manner of features, like everything. And those features will frequently will be good ideas and things you should include, but often there'll be things they're like, no, like the burden of including that feature into the project is too high. Like you should go to this other project to do it. Or sometimes this could be like the feature they're asking for is something that's in your commercial offering, right? And in order to have like an honest conversation about that, you, I think it's good to define upfront, this is what the open source thing is for and this is what it does, right? And if it's outside that scope, you can easily say like, no, we're going to reject that. But having, having the separate team structures, that basically impacts like not only like the product, the shape of the product you ship, but the way it's commercialized as well, like how it's sold. We've talked a lot about IOX and getting to the conclusion of, of that project. Are there any final considerations you want to share specifically around like managing large open source projects? Because I think the open source element and key part of your strategy with open source is, is such a unique thing that I, I don't think a lot of folks get exposure to. Are there any other considerations around open source that you'd recommend? I don't know about managing the open source projects, but I'll just say community licenses are not open source. Source available licenses are not open source. If you're going to say you're doing open source, like in my mind, it has to be Apache 2 or MIT or permissibly licensed code. You can do a GPL or GPL, but mm, I'm not a fan of either of those either, really. With how to manage open source, it's, it's tricky because, I mean, ultimately, like you want to be responsive to your community and, and all this other stuff. But again, like as a project gets bigger and bigger, people within the community will have different goals and different aims. Uh, and I think that the best thing you can do to manage that and to manage expectations is to try to be clear about what the goal of the project itself is. So people can set their expectations for, oh, should the project do this? Or maybe I should be looking elsewhere for something. And, and probably insight that could persist to a lot of other elements is be clear with the goal up front, be clear with the expectations for folks for, for a lot of different things. So great insight there. 
Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? <laughs> yeah, sure. All right. What are you reading or listening to right now? So I'm reading two books. I'm reading The Happiness Hypothesis and uh, The Fate of Rome, which are both very interesting. So you've already shared some perspectives and opinions around specific tools, methodologies, design choices. Is there, I guess, in your global experience as a professional in this, in this space, is there a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you? Going back to the aughts, like test-driven development, when I picked that up, that was really, like I was, re I was really into test-driven development and then later agile back in the day. That's had a big impact on how I view software development. Of course, before that, I was on the test team for Windows 2000. So that was like 98 and 99. Microsoft, of course, at that time, is a waterfall development house. <laughs> so it's totally different development process. Uh, so I saw both and I became a big fan of Agile after suffering through the other. It's the exposure to that, I'm sure, had a big impact. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's a different game if you're shipping boxed software, if that were even a thing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> What is a trend that you're seeing or following uh, that you think is really interesting or, or maybe hasn't hit the mainstream yet? I'm curious to see what people start thinking about uh, cloud costs. DHS is this re recent post about moving 37 base camps uh, infrastructure off the cloud and onto you know, their own servers, I think is interesting. Everybody assumes it's a foregone conclusion that every soft, all software will be SaaS. And I think the pendulum is going to start swinging the other way. And I think that's one part of it. So I'm interested to see how that develops. That's a great pulse to, to pick up on. I, I've started to see some some ripples and whispers through the, the hallways as well with that. We had a, a conversation about managing cloud costs and there was rumblings in the deep about that. So plus wanting that for sure. What's been one of the most meaningful in-person experiences with your team, company, or otherwise? We do, like, a, like I said, we've been a distributed company for, I mean, since we started adding people to the team initially. And we do a once-a-year get-together, which obviously we didn't get to do. We did one in 2020 in February, like right before the, uh, the pandemic started. So we had the first one uh, since then in May. So like an all-company get-together. It's really cool because all the people that got hired for the IOX team got hired during the pandemic. Uh, so it was really cool to see everybody like in person, you know, the entire company and then the IOX team specifically. Absolutely. Especially after, you know, a couple of years of everything we've talked about now to bring everybody together. Yeah. I was curious, did you have a celebration moment for the end of IOX, or I guess for last week's sort of early beta announcement? I mean, we, uh, did we, I, we didn't really, I'm not good at that. Software is never done. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> like ever. So there's always something new to build or focus on. So I'm basically, uh, focused on the next milestone. Oh, maybe one of these days I'll feel like we've arrived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. Will happen. <laughs> but a journeyman. All right. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's really been resonating with you right now? I mean, a mantra I live by right now is ship the database. <laughs> ship the database that's just replaying in my head over and over and over again. Uh, like I said, we have the, a more a broader GA next year and we have to do all, the, all this other stuff. So a quote... I got into I got into reading like Stoic philosophy and stuff like that a number of years ago, uh, as many people have. And the the Stoics have like a version of essentially the Serenity Prayer, you know, which is you know like grant me the courage to change the things I can, the patience to deal with the things I can't, the wisdom to know the difference. 
But with Stoics, it's like there are things outside your control and things in your control. And the things outside your control are not the things you should set your goals and your happiness by. The things within your control are the things that should drive your happiness and be what you set your goals around. So that's what I try to live by. Not always successful at that, but... <laughs> well, it's a it's a, a lifelong process for sure. Paul, just want to say thank you for in in a lot of ways open sourcing your thoughts, your approaches, your strategies for for everything here. I think it's a really rare opportunity for people to get exposure and insight to a huge release like IOX and all of the considerations and and ways that you worked with the team to to make this happen. So, just really appreciate you taking the time to share your lessons and learnings along the way. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.